Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Welcome to Camp Constitution Radio with your host, Hal Shirtliff. This show is heard on WBCQ The Planet every Monday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And um, it's brought to you by Camp Constitution, uh, which, among other things, runs a week and a day-long family camp. And this year's camp is coming right up just a week away, July 2nd to the 9th. And uh, you can go on our website and you can see what the great things we do at our camp. A YouTube channel that has some of our classes from previous years. And uh, we have a great list, a lineup of instructors this year. We, I would say we have a great lineup every year. But this year we have um, <clears throat> Professor Willie Soon, one of the top climate realists in the world. Larry Pratt of Gun Owners of America. We have John McManus of the John Birch Society. And our guest, Alex Newman, that's just on the line here. Alex, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Hal. How are you? Well, i got to say some good stuff about Alex Newman. Alex is a um, writer for The New American and World Net Daily. He is the co-author of Crimes of the Educators. It was another book you published, too, on um, it was uh, things dealing with the New World Order. I can't remember the name of that. Yeah, World well, Federalism uh, 101. Uh, That's I, did, I did that with Rick Biondi. And it's not so much uh, a book that we wrote, although you know I, I wrote the introduction to it and um, but what it really is is just a compilation of quotes and facts, um, a lot of it just directly word for word from the congressional record, showing people that uh, this agenda for a world government, for a world federalist system of government, um, was really completely out in the open. If you go back to the 50s uh, and uh, even into the 60s a little bit, you had uh, you know legislation promoting this, you had uh, top politicians openly promoting these ideas, and uh, that's Richard Nixon. Of, Richard Nixon was one of them. Ronald Reagan. That's right. The uh, world federalist vice. I think he was a vice president with Alan Cranston. Then there was about seven or eight resolutions, or I should say, Article Five Convention applications, calling for a convention to change the Constitution so we could participate in the world government. And what was that book that came out um, in the early '60s? It was a very uh, popular mass-produced paperback. Oh, my goodness. It was, a, was it I by Clarence was, was it, Strait? Uh, no, that was one of them, Clarence Strait. That was Atlantic Union Now. It was earlier. Mm-hmm. This one was – it was about world government, and it was actually – there was a little colony in southern New Hampshire, not too far from where our camp is, where you know they had these uh, meetings of the minds, these globalist uh, types. Oh, my goodness. It was a very – you know, it was – it didn't it didn't sell as many as uh, none dare call it treason, but it was just about that time when it came out. Uh, so it's yeah, it, the stuff was so open, and then when you articulate that message in the last twenty or thirty years, oh, it's a conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy right. theory. <laughs> uh, you, you show the evidence. Here it is, right here. Here's David Rockefeller's book, Memoirs. He's admitting that he's part 
he used the term cabal or something to that effect. Uh, and he used the term conspiring. He, he used the word conspiring. They accuse us of being conspiracy theorists. There's no theory here. I mean, we have documented firsthand confessions that these That's guys it. were conspiring for a one-world system. They told us so. I guess they just figured nobody will ever read the dumb books. So Nobody will read it, or those that do, uh, what are they going to do about it? And, uh, where, where were the hearings? Where was the, where was the attorney general of the United States going in and say, hey, Dave, um, you just confessed to tre- high treason. I'm sorry, <laughs> but we're going to have to arrest you, and we're going to have to put you in Gitmo. Sorry, I know you're – well, he's deceased <laughs> now. This was, he wrote the book in, what, 03, 04, somewhere around there? I think uh, so. Yeah, it was published. Yeah, so years, yeah. Uh, he was still uh, he was still only uh, he was still a young guy in his late eighties. For goodness sakes, Frank. I'm chicken. sure they could have found a nice, comfortable cell to put him in. You know. <laughs> so, uh, but I think the reason the main reason why I wanted you on the show today, you've been a guest in the past. I think we talked about Common Core. Is that the Paris Accords? And I believe you attended that meeting two years ago in Paris and reported on it. And I like to talk about. And it was very interesting that. Uh, you know, the fact that Trump pulled out of it, at least for now, all the liberals thought the world come to an end. So tell us about the meeting, uh, the constitutionality of these, these accords and whatever else you want to uh, add. Sure. Well, thank you for having me, Hal. I was indeed at the meeting, and uh, I had the privilege of seeing how the infamous sausage was made, right? And you know what they say about that, once you see it being made, you'll never eat it, right? So I saw how this fraudulent thing came about. It was really crazy, Hal. I mean, when I, when I tell some people about this stuff, they're like, no way. But one of the first things that happened when I got there, I got a press release from the G77 plus China. Uh, this is basically an alliance of uh, tin horn dictators uh, plus communist China, you know, bigger than a tin horn dictatorship. Uh, 134 of them in all. So basically every Islamist socialist dictatorship you could think of, uh, plus some you know, technically non-dictatorships, but you know, corrupt uh, third world regimes that have kept their people in poverty through uh, big government and corruption and things like that. Uh, so they came together, and it, it was it really read like a ransom note to me. They basically said, we want $100 billion <laughs> per year in a green climate fund, uh, plus it needs to go up after 2020, and if we don't get that $100 billion a year, we're out of here. And they said, you know, climate reparations, you mean old uh, Western countries, you guys have been releasing CO2 for so long, and that's why you guys are so rich and we're so poor, so now we mm-hmm. demand, uh, you know, a piece of the pie. And so, you know, Obama, of course, was more than happy to surrender our tax money, and so were most of the uh, Western so-called leaders. And so that was really a you know, very fitting start to this whole uh, charade, if you will. Uh, from there, it only got more and more ridiculous. They said, oh, well, we agree that we're going to keep temperatures within two degrees Celsius. Yeah, I mean, stuff that's, when you realize the, under, the level of understanding of climate science, I mean, you just have to kind of burst out laughing at this nonsense. But... Um, yeah, the long and the short of it uh, was they knew they could never get a treaty through the U.S. Senate. In fact, plenty of senators had announced that. They said, you know, all you world leaders, you know, you guys can do whatever you want. This is not going to be binding on the United States. The U.S. Senate is never going to approve this. And if the Senate doesn't approve it, it's not even a treaty. But they went ahead anyway, and they acted like it was a uh, settled law. So sometimes they called it a binding treaty. Sometimes they used uh, Obama's term. He called it an executive agreement because that allowed him to bypass the Senate, uh, or so he thought. And, um, you know, basically he built the entire foundation of their global warming regime on quicksand, which, you know, from a globalist perspective was a rather dumb thing to do because now, uh, you know, Trump has simply withdrawn from it, and that's the end of the story. (laughs) I mean, there's nothing they can do about it. Um, And I should point out that even if the U.S. Senate had 
decided to go along with this charade and had ratified some kind of fraudulent document like this, it would still be unconstitutional. Right? I mean, the, the founders, Thomas Jefferson, was very clear. Um, you know, you can't give new powers to the federal government by ratifying a treaty. You have to go through the amendment process, and uh, there's no federal power for you know to do what Obama had promised he was going to do in this agreement to you know, regulate well, CO2 emissions and. Uh, I have you know, to I say, God, God bless the founding fathers. They gave us the electoral college, and they gave us a very difficult threshold to uh, a supermajority to pass treaties and to uh, to add amendments. So they were very far-seeing people. Uh, they were, you know, they would, you know, if it weren't for that, they would have, there would have been all kinds of crazy amendments in treaties if it was a simple majority. And that's an important point. I think since the 20s, 1920s, there was this notion that a treaty, regardless of what that treaty says, it automatically supersedes the Constitution. So if you make a treaty with a country that includes disarming the citizens of both countries, well, that's the highest law of the land. Well, no, you have to look at Article 6 of the Constitution. It says that they have to be made in pursuance thereof of the Constitution. And I I, I believe it was... um, the purpose of a treaty is something that you deal with nation to nation, uh, trade ag- agreements with trade, immigration, visitations, commerce. But climate change, first off, well, climate change is all the time, but there's no man-made global warming, so it's based on a false premise. But what makes these agreements more wicked, uh, evil, is that they can be implemented locally by the local liberal st- towns or cities and when you say this is a U.N. P- program, they oh, there's no U.N. plot here. You mean to tell me that the bike pass are a U.N. plot? Ha <laughs> ha. Well, no, not so much a U.N. plot, but it's something that was formulated at a U.N. gathering, whether it be Agenda 21 in Rio or the, the Paris Accords. Now, the, what, was, what was the U.N. The UN's hand in the Paris Accords? Well, the U.N. basically served as, first of all, the forum to negotiate all this. Uh, it was also going to be the custodian. Because uh, the way this worked um, was basically, they, they called it the national, uh, nationally determined intended contributions to stopping global warming. And so under the, the structure of this, each government was supposed to come up with whatever they were going to volunteer to do for global warming. And so Obama's pledge was, we're going to cut uh, man-made CO2 emissions, uh, I think he said, I forget the exact numbers, but I think it was 28% by, you know, whatever it was, 2025. 2030 or something crazy like that. Yeah, exactly. I don't remember the exact numbers. And so the idea was that then Obama would go to the UN, tell them, hey, this is what we intend to do to, to rein in global warming. And, uh, and then the next time around, so every five years, they were supposed to come back with, uh, they, they called it a ratcheting sure. mechanism. So every time uh. they met back again, they were supposed to come up with new and improved ways of stopping alleged man-made global warming. And uh, so Obama gave all kinds of promises, right? He he basically said, well, China, you guys can do whatever you want. India, you guys can do whatever you want. We in the United States, we are going to slash CO2 emissions, which, of course, as he admitted early on, would cause electricity rates to skyrocket, would cause the prices of everything to skyrocket because everything requires energy. And uh, in exchange, we get nothing except uh, we have to write humongous checks to this green climate fund to pay off the third world dictators so that they would play along with this whole scam. And well, no, um, the other thing would be, the other thing would be uh, acres and acres of solar panels and a lot of uh, deforested mountainsides, mountain tops full of uh, these uh, wind turbines. That's what we'll get. Right, bird choppers, I call. 
Exactly. <laughs> um, but, and, you know, the, 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 it's all so absurd, Hal. And, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Willie Soon. Uh, he, he very much understands how absurd all this is. And I've interviewed dozens and dozens of climate scientists, including many who have actually served on the UN IPCC. And some of them have just resigned. They said, this is a gigantic fraud. I pointed out massive errors in this thing, and they wouldn't even correct them. <laughs> so, um, wow. you know, it, it, it's a pretty giant fraud. Uh, Trump did a very good thing by uh, like quitting this monstrosity. Uh, unfortunately, in my opinion, he didn't go nearly far enough. Um, you know, instead of calling their bluff and saying, "Hey, this whole thing is a hoax. We're not going to play along," he said, "Well, we're opening, open to negotiating." To renegotiate, yeah, down the right, road, yeah, we can get yeah, a fair yeah. one. And uh, he yeah. should have come out and said, "Hey, this whole thing is a giant hoax. I've talked to a bunch of my scientists. They all told me this thing is a hoax. We're not going to play along with this fraud." But you know, to his credit, he got us out. Uh, he, he gave a nod to American sovereignty. He said, we're reclaiming our sovereignty. We're not going to let the UN tell us how much energy we can use and things like that. And uh, so he made a really good move. And he promised to do that on the campaign. So, you know, he was he did, yeah. fulfilling his campaign promise. But, you know, we've got to give credit where credit is due. And, and the know, first, I think one of the first things he did as executive order was to lift the restrictions on the coal industry. And, you know, I yep. think he got like 85% of the... West West Virginia has always been a solid Democrat state too. The Democrats are supposed to be, you know, these big great union people, and most of the coal miners, if not all, are unionized. So, uh, so you think it's a slam dunk? And then Hillary Clinton says, "We're going to shut those sons of guns down. Mm-hmm. They'll all be unemployed." Hey guys, maybe we ought to look reconsider who the heck we're going to vote for here, you know? <laughs> and sure enough, you know, he uh, he lift the restrictions, which by the way were unconstitutional to begin with. You know, the EPA shouldn't exist. Uh, I could see a statewide entity, you know, that, that that may have some legitimacy under the state constitution, but for the federal government to simply uh, the EPA simply pass. And it's interesting too. The uh, they're all, the left is blaming the Republicans. All they want to do is they want to see dirty water, and they want to see dirty air, and they want to see all <laughs> dead trees. It, it was Ronald uh, Richard Nixon that gave us the EPA. And William Ruckelhaus was the one that first led the play the thing, and so it's, it was a Republican thing from the beginning. And the yep. environmental created by executive oh, order, mind you. Exactly. Yeah. These these big these wealthy rich Republicans. Oh, you mean like the Rockefellers? They're the ones that funded the environmental movement from from day one. For goodness sake. Yep. And there's a very good report out now documenting all that from the uh, Energy and Environment Legal Institute. Uh, incredibly good. I encourage everybody to take a look at that because it really gives you an understanding of how the Rockefellers have driven this every step of the way. From, from, uh, from the, uh, I would say from the 50s is when I think they started this movement, maybe even before that. Um, yeah, oh, then you had, yeah, I mean, you know, they were at the global cooling before the global warming. Well, that was but, in the se- – I remember it was in junior high in the early 70s, mid-70s, early 70s. And I remember, um, you know, oh, uh, we're going to have another ice age because we had some cold weather. What's fascinating, I was visiting the the um, Noah Webster house in, in West Hartford, Connecticut. I took one of my girls there on a homeschool field trip. This may have been over 10 years ago. And I picked up a biography. Oh, I picked up a book that he uh, did. It was published in 1810. And it was something called like the supposed temperature, change of temperature in winter. I said, this is interesting. Let me check this out. Well, he had, did a, he, he had written a number of things and gave presentation speeches. I didn't have PowerPoint in those days, I guess, um, from the late 1790s, and they decided to publish it in his public domain. And it, he pointed out that, that, that guys like Thomas Jefferson, uh, they, were, they were looking at 
birds, certain species of animals, especially birds, that were coming further north, you know, and they thought that because what the result of that was warmer winters. Now, they weren't worried about the world coming to an end. They thought it was a good thing that the winters were getting warmer and it would be nicer. Yeah? So uh, he went to a lot of detail and he refuted it. And what he did was he went to the Old Testament and the, uh, for, for weather patterns, and then he looked at the diaries of farmers. In those days, diary farmers did say, oh, I fell in love today. And this, they, would, they would put down temperatures or when something froze over or the first uh, crocus that bloomed or when the crop was harvested, things like that. So he looked at all these over the course of many years, and he concluded that, that there were mild winters and there were severe winters. The pilgrims in 1620. Thank, thank God they had a mild winter that first winter, but then they had some severe winters. So it was just a cyclical thing. It has nothing to do with man's influence in the environment. So at 1810, we go back that far to point out that uh, there wasn't any, uh, that they've been talking about this for years. That's amazing. See, I never heard yeah. any of that history, so I appreciate you uh, letting us yeah, know. Yeah, we, we actually, Camp Constitution actually reprinted that. And I can wow. get you. A, I'll see you. I'll see you in a couple of weeks because you're going to be at camp, and I'll get you a copy of it. Yeah, I'm very much looking yeah. forward to it. So. Yeah. Well, um, what uh, what do you think the, from here? What do you think the next plan of action would be from the left or from the internationalists uh, now that Trump's pulled out? What is what's the game plan? You know, I think. That's a very good question. Uh, I think the global warming scam has really imploded. I mean, if you look at the polls, the American people, most of the American people do not even believe the theory, much less these ridiculous policy solutions that they're advocating to, to you know, solve this alleged problem. And uh, the polls have been pretty consistent. I've been looking at the Pew polls. Um, in oh, really? 2014, yeah, they had a very interesting one. The Pew uh, Research put one out, and I think they had an interesting methodology because first they asked people, um, "Do you think the Earth is warming? Yes or no?" And so that that immediately created two categories: the, the yes, we believe it's warming, and the no, we don't believe it's warming. So the no, we don't believe it's warming; those are a total loss for the global warmest, right? They don't even believe in the warming, much less the man-made part. Then they broke down the second category, you know, the ones who yes, we believe it's warming into two categories. Um, man is primarily responsible for this, or man is not primarily responsible for this. So when you add in those questions, you ended up with 60% of Americans did not even believe that uh, man's emissions of CO2 were causing warming. Uh, so that's an incredibly high number. I mean, that's you know, 60% of the people. They, they stopped phrasing their question that way. I looked at the most recent one that they put out late last year, and even when they got rid of the good line of questioning, and I think that's how they should have done it, um, even still, they could not get a majority of people to agree with a man-made global warming theory. They were a little bit closer, but uh, they were still under 50% who believed in the global warming theory. So if you would ask the question honestly, and then you would add another question on top, do you think we should destroy our economy, give up our freedom, and surrender sovereignty to the United Nations to solve this alleged problem, I mean, you're talking about the fringe of the fringe of the fringe here uh, that actually supports this kind of stuff. And you would never know it from reading the New York Times and the Washington Compact. Oh, no, and, uh, or big city mayors and, and, and uh, liberal governors in both parties, too. They, uh, I think it was uh, Charlie Baker's a governor here in Massachusetts, where, I, where I'm from. Now, I know Maine's governor isn't buying it as baloney. Uh, governor LePage, where this show originates up in uh, northern, northern Manawister County, they're not buying that baloney, but uh, the city mayor, mayor, mayor. If you go to this any big city's website, you'll see that 
climate action, climate change, and all this stuff. In fact, the Rockefeller Foundation is partnering with Boston and they, this thing they call Imagine Boston 2030. Boy, it sounds so warm and fuzzy, doesn't it? Oh, How it will does. Boston look in 2030? What will <laughs> the population be? You know, I had an interesting, um, we had uh, the church I attend, uh, that my family attends, the pastor had a friend of his, and, and their job was to, uh, they used to start churches, and he's talking about the churches in the big cities. And he said, and I don't think he was, I, he, I didn't get a chance to talk with him, but I don't think he really understood. He wasn't trying to expose Agenda 21, but he says as churches go, as cities go more vertical, they, there's fewer churches, you know. So as the populations of inner cities and big cities rise, there's fewer churches. And he's pointing out to the fact that this Agenda 21 is encouraging you know, growth, uh, smart growth. And so there's a little lot of land that at one point was zoned for maybe a two- or three-story building. Now there's a 15- or 20-story building. You're seeing that in Boston and other big cities or middle-sized cities. And uh, there's no place for a little storefront church anymore. There's any property. You can't afford it. So I wonder if these schemers said, yeah, that's another thing we're going to do here. We're going to get rid of these churches. You know, it's you know, It's amazing. very clear that they're incredibly hostile to religion, particularly the Christian religion. Uh, you know, I mean, if you look at their program, it's essentially you know, an effort to repeal the book of Genesis. Right? I mean, God told us to uh, be fruitful. Oh, we can't be fruitful. Oh, no, we've got to have to be fruitful. No, we have to be sterile. Right, exactly. I, I, and then multiply. I, I, oh, goodness, don't even get them started on the multiply. I mean, they consider humans <laughs> to be a plague on the earth. Last thing they want is for us to multiply, and so they're running, uh, you know, population control programs all over the world. You have Henry Kissinger with his national security memorandum that we need to uh, reduce the population across the third world. You have them promoting abortions. You have them doing forced abortions. And that goes China. back to the se- that goes back to the seventies, doesn't it? Yeah, it goes back even before. I mean, it really you can trace it all back to the quack uh, Malthus, who uh, you know, oh Thomas the population, right? Yes. right yeah. the UK. Yeah who thought the population was going to explode and we were all going to starve. Now, he's been proven wrong many, many times over, of course. Um, What's fascinating fascinating is that these Agenda 21 policies, climate change policies, hurt the poor in the inner cities more than anywhere else. And it's really difficult to get that message across. Uh, The same thing with open borders. You know, you you have a low-paying job, but it's a job. And then you've got someone who is illegal against the job, so they don't need that low-paying guy who's a U.S. citizen. They can't afford to put him on the rolls. And yep. that's a tough nut to crack. And, you know, we're making a little progress here in Boston. I know other people. Uh, it's important to reach out to people in the inner cities and uh, because well, – it's kind of interesting. Um, I, I've been involved with a pastor in, in the Dorchester section of Boston, and there was a parking lot uh, that – was a was a crack house an abandoned three family home and a storefront the city tore it down the property was you know abandoned and they made 25 years ago you couldn't give that property away they didn't even bother paving it and now it's worth 25 million dollars if the city wants to sell it i said to the pastor i said why don't you just tell the city look you gave the muslims a sweetheart deal why don't you give me the same deal <laughs> you know but it, yeah and but in that same in that same neighborhood there's a bike path on the street and we had a little a little outreach event pro whatever protest awareness and i'm on this i'm on the street for about an hour and a half not one bike went by me and this was rush hour time you know uh it's just incredible uh it's it's really you know the the rail trails is another thing too you know and the rail trails well what's wrong with having nice little bike trails where there used to be train tracks well because you're 
you're interfering with people's private property, you have these easement restrictions, and you've got a lot of towns that have all kinds of sidewalks. Why do you need to have a, a, a trail when you just go for a walk in your neighborhood? You know? But it's all part of this, uh, the, I guess it looks good on the, on the resume if you have put a bike path here and you put these bike, uh, I mean, a rails to trails and put a bike path on that busy road. See, Boston had to lower its uh, speed limit from 30 to 25 in densely populated areas now because people are getting killed on these bikes. I, I would love to see a good stu- study on that. My my good friend, uh, you know, Dr. Yeshua, too, uh, I you know mentioned uh, you know these bike paths and so forth. So he, he gets a little research and he finds that, hell, you know, the number of people getting killed on bikes has gone up whatever percentage. And he showed me a couple of stories of, of, of well-known Boston doc, two well-known prominent doctors from Brookline to their hospitals, you know, it's a 10 minute bike ride. They got clobbered on, you know, because there's a lot of dense traffic on roads that weren't designed for, you know, to have a lot of bikes on. And, you know, it's uh, and now they're dead and uh, their global, their global footprint uh, didn't make much difference. You know, it's just, it, it's amazing how some very intelligent and bright people can fall for something like this. Yep. Now it, it is pretty incredible. And, um, I, I think, unfortunately, you know, this with this UN Agenda 2030 moving forward, we're going to see a lot more of these crazy policies. And uh, with you know the the quality of our so-called education system, I'm not sure it even deserves to be called an education system. We're going to see a lot more gullible people willing to buy into these things. And so, uh, our job, of course, is getting, uh, in one sense, harder. Right? I mean, you know, the indoctrination is becoming more extreme. The dumbing down is becoming more extreme. The illiteracy is spreading. Uh, but on the other hand, we also have you know new tools available to us. So um, you know it's a race against time now between those who value freedom and truth and justice and those who want to build a totalitarian global system in which they can literally tax the gas that you exhale, CO2, the gas right. of life. So uh, and by know, the way, coming um, down to the wire. So. We've got four minutes left, so I want to talk a little bit about your your book, your book that you co-authored with Sam Blumenfeld, Crimes of the Educators. Uh, phenomenal book. It was, what, two years ago? Three years ago it came out? Yes, it was in uh, 2015, if I'm not mistaken, April 2015. So two years ago about it came out. And in that book, you of course, Common Core. The, I think one of the best chapters is the chapter that I think Sam wrote the chapter on the um, – the black under the the creation of a black underclass uh, due to the miseducation uh, reeducate no education the poor the poor quality of the schools the look say method of reading and uh, so just talk a little bit about the book uh, the next three minutes I know you can spend two hours on the book but I think I'd give us give you a little uh, chance to do that and by the way if you have any copies bring them with you to sell sell at camp because I'm out of them so. Uh, Okay. Well, I will be more yeah. than happy to bring some up yeah. with me. Thank you, Hal. And, uh, you're right. I could talk for two weeks about this, not just two hours. There's just so much crucial information in there. And, um, you know, thanks in part to Sam, I've come to realize that the education battle is maybe the most crucial of all the battles because if the globalists, if the establishment gets to brainwash 90% of America's youth, uh, you know, assuming we continue voting, <laughs> inevitably this is not going to end well. And so, uh, you know, it's critical that we stay involved in this battle. But the long and the short of it is, and I think the book uh, proves this beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, there's so many primary source documents referenced in the article, just UNESCO documents, documents from John Dewey, the founder of the modern education system. But the long and the short of it is, it is literally designed 
to do what it's doing, and that is to mass-produce illiterates, people who despise Christianity or who think Christianity is ridiculous, uh, people who believe in socialism and reject individualism, people who have no knowledge uh, of the Declaration or, or of Independence or the Constitution or the concept of God-given rights, and people who are, frankly, easily um, misled, easy to manipulate, and who will even eagerly demand their own enslavement. And as we can see all around us, this has been uh, pretty successful now. I mean, the federal government's own numbers show that most Americans can barely read, if that. Um, and so we have a crisis of monumental pr proportions here. Uh, we absolutely need God's help to deal with this, but uh, you know, we all have a role as well. And uh, that includes protecting our own children, protecting you know children in our lives. If we're grandparents or uncles or uh, aunts or you know whatever it is, you have to protect the children uh, that you care about first, and then after we need to figure out what to do about the rest of these poor kids who are being indoctrinated and dumbed down uh, systematically in this uh, scam of a system called the public school system. And if we fail on this, we are literally going to lose our freedoms. We're going to lose our constitutional republic. Uh, and it's going to be a very, very nasty future ahead if we don't deal with this problem. And one of the things, um, one of the great ways to help with that is our little Humble's uh, Blumenfeld archives, which we've uh, put up the last couple of years. And uh, with Sam's Alpha Phonics and his lessons, uh, you can actually teach people how to read. And we're getting about 250,000 views. I know you're, 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 you're using it. Uh, a month, which I'm so I was so surprised to see that, and we got a lot. We've got about thirty thousand downloads of uh, some of the books, uh, especially the Alpha Phonics workbook, and a lot of the presentations he did talking about this problem. He talked about Common Core thirty years before it was officially launched. You know, mm -hmm. so uh, okay, we got. Uh, oh, we're running out of time. Well, hey, Alex, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. We're looking forward to seeing you in a few weeks. And folks, this show has been brought to you by Camp Constitution. Thank you for listening. And until next week, God bless. Thank you so much, Tom.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.